This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. It is Saturday, and good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable Radio. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted and honored to welcome to this program a great American patriot and a principal leader, Professor Victor Davis Hanson. His extraordinary work is prescient, and the articles and books that he has authored have challenged us and inspired us all. Our distinguished guest, Victor Davis Hanson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and his focus is classics and military history. A best-selling author, Professor Victor Davis Hanson's recent book is a must-read. Its title, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Professor Victor Davis Hanson's other excellent books include The Savior Generals, How Five Great Commanders Saved Wars That Were Lost From Ancient Greece to Iraq, The Case for Trump, The Second World Wars, Carnage and Culture, as well as two books on family farming, Fields Without Dreams, and The Land Was Everything. These books will make great summer reading, and you can learn more by visiting victorhanson.com. And without any further delay, we extend a warm welcome to Professor Victor Davis Hanson. Good morning, sir, and welcome again to America's Roundtable. Welcome, Dr. Hanson. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Dr. Henson, in your excellent and must-read book for every American who is concerned about America's future, The Dying Citizen, you elaborate on the ancient argument that to be self-governing, citizens must be economically autonomous. And you share about an emergence of new American peasantry, of millions of Americans who own little or no property. And you say... 58% of Americans have less than $1,000 in the bank. And about 46% of the population usually die with a net worth less than $10,000, both receiving and bequeathing little, if any, inheritance. And every day as citizens, we are moving further away from being economically autonomous. If we compare a few economic indicators between Trump and Biden administration, we observe that the inflation rate was at 1.4%. Today, it is at 8.6%. 30-year mortgage rate was at around 3%, and today is at 6%. Gas prices were at $2.30 a gallon, and today at around $5 per gallon. And Dr. Hansen, where do we go from here in order to regain lost ground and have citizens achieve economic autonomy for its own sake, as well as a prerequisite for self-governance. It's very hard because we have been hollowing out the middle class and the stuff, the center is not holding in America. 
and that can be defined by the border. There is no border. The border is not porous. It just doesn't exist anymore. People come across as they wish and do as they please. Gas and diesel. The only thing that's going to make diesel and gasoline affordable is not uh, draining the strategic petroleum reserve. It's too late now to reverse course and get the pipelines and the fracking and the horizontal drilling. That would be good, but he has so offended those people and that he has so discouraged financing to them that I don't think it'll in the short term we can get gas prices down. What will what will discourage it is we're going to go into a big recession. I hate to say that. I don't want to be a prophet of bloom. And people who were uh, buoyed by $5 trillion of printed money, that is running out at a geometric rate because of the inflation so high, whether it's meat, building materials, rent, cars, fuel, electricity. And pretty soon, I would imagine the turn of the turn of the year, people are not going to be able to afford here in California, for example, $6.80 for gasoline. They can't do it. So the prices will come down simply because we're impoverishing the middle class to such a degree that uh, they won't be able to afford anything. They're unlike the poor who are subsidized and the very rich who, do, who don't really care what the prices are and in fact are culpable for their policies that are deliberately intended uh, to pursue these utopian bromides and agendas without any concern to the middle class. And I'm not exaggerating. If you saw John Kerry recently, he, he simply declared he didn't want to drill. He didn't want any more natural gas. He didn't want fracking. This is a person that has seven or eight big homes. He, he's limousine where he, when he lands, he flies private jet. The Obamas said the same thing. They just put in a 2,500-gallon propane tank in one of their mansions. So this elite is not subject to the consequences of their own ideology, and they are the democratic or the left-wing movement today. And so that party is really a party of the subsidized poor and the very, very wealthy and is a band of the middle class. And they are in power right now. And that, is, that explains this war to turn middle class people into peasants. The decline of the rule of law in America uh, is an issue that we talked about in the past. Evidence provided even greater concern that we even have a two-tier justice system, a selective and punitive system for those who hold conservative views, which are contrary to the extreme left in our nation. And Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Democrats have refused to publicly condemn attacks on churches and pro-life centers while pushing propaganda and attempting to make January 6th a historic date in America. And as we've seen Supreme Court justices, those who cherish our shared values and principles face threats. Our protesters are now swarming their homes. And in fact, it is illegal to intimidate judges in any court. It is strictly prohibited. And Title 18 of the U.S. Code Section 1507 states, and I quote, pickets or parades in or near a building, housing a court of the United States in or near a building or residence occupied or used by such judge, juror, witness, or court officer, or with such intent uses any sound truck or similar device or resorts to any other demonstration in or near any such building or residence shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than one year or both, unquote. And the mainstream media has really under-reported the summer riots of 2020. And you have mentioned that in one of your articles, and I quote, 
Note that the 2020 summer rioting, arson and looting continued for nearly four months. Its toll resulted in over 35 dead, some 1,500 police officers injured, around 14,000 arrests and between $1 to $2 billion in property damage. Professor Victor Davis Hanson, what are the other areas that you find troubling and what should our fellow Americans be aware of in regard to the erosion of the rule of law in our republic? We're in a revolutionary fervor, an era where the rule of law really does not exist. This is something analogous to the French Revolution, 1793, or the Bolsheviks since 1920s, where law is adjudicated by ideology. And I say that very carefully because of the examples that, that you mentioned. But we tried this in the 60s, where the 60s revolutionaries tried to alter the law. But the difference was they never got control of the institutions. They protested outside the Pentagon. They protested outside the, pro- the prosecutor's office. They burned Chicago. They weren't controlling Chicago. That generation has now come of age and they own the institutions. So they're far more deadly, lethal to the fabric of America because this time around, this revolution is an institutional revolution. They own the institutions. And they have established this idea that to retain power without public support, and they have no public support as a poll show, they have to redefine the law, not as it's written, but what they say. Uh, serves the majority or provides equity or diversity or inclusion. And so on January 6th, we all regretted that federal riot, but it was a one-day riot and 800 people arrested. Some were were in preventive detention, were not charged for over a year. And on May 31st, a huge crowd, far bigger, broke in out of Lafayette Park, tried to cross the street and get into the White House grounds. They torched a historic St. John's Episcopal Church. They were so close to the president that the Secret Service, who did not get help from the, although they had requested it from the Washington police forces, they retreated and took the first family into a bunker. No one said a word. We look at James O'Keefe or Peter Navarro or Roger Stone, all conservative activists of some sort, or, or they all have been either arrested or humiliated by the FBI. But we know the FBI's acting director, Andrew McCabe, by his own admission, lied three times. That's a felony, three felonies to federal investigators. We know that James Comey claimed on 245 occasions that he couldn't remember while under oath. We know that Robert Mueller said that he didn't know what the Steele dossier or Fusion GPS were. Those were the two pillars of his own investigation. We know that Kevin Kleinsmith forged a document and got a very light sentence. So what I'm getting at is that The message that goes out to people is, if you go to a Supreme Court justice home and you threaten them, and remember, the person who tried, who was going to assassinate Justice Kavanaugh was not caught by a policeman. He turned himself in at the last moment with a change of heart, called his sister, called 911. Otherwise, he would have carried that out. But we all know that if you go to a conservative justice home and you commit a felony by harassing their family or place of uh, abode, nothing's going to happen to you. Had they gone to Justice Kagan or Sotomayor, they would have all been arrested and charged with felonies. There's no doubt about it. And they should have been if they did that. 
And the same thing is if you break into a church, a Catholic diocese in Los Angeles, and you disrupt the services and trust, you will not be prosecuted if it's in a pro-abortion. Had pro-lifers done that to a church, they would be arrested. So this is the United States, but under Merrick Garland, who, remember, has sicked the FBI on parents and has turned it into a retrieval service for the Biden family to find Ashley Biden's diary or Hunter Biden's laptop. It's not, it's not the America that we all knew. They have hijacked the Department of Justice and they've turned it into a political arm of the left. And they're using it selectively to go after their political opponents. And what's dangerous about it, it sends a message. So the average American in CEO, if he's running a corporation or he's on a forklift, whatever his station is, he says to himself, should I take out indemnity insurance, insurance about being canceled or being hounded by the IRS? If I am left wing or liberal, I have a better chance of being overlooked if I, I do something. But if I'm loud and I'm conservative, I'm going to be targeted. And so people make the necessary adjustment. And that's the purpose of what they're doing. They're trying to send a message when they send a SWAT team after Roger Stone, or they handcuff the feet of Peter Navarro, or they take James O'Keefe out in his underwear into the hallway in the middle of the night. They're saying to people, don't do what these people are doing, but if you do the other thing, we're going to let you pretty much slide. And that's very scary. It is. It is scary because uh, this kind of lawlessness uh, was actually experienced by Eastern European countries, uh, post-communists, still persisting, uh, politically influenced judiciary. And this is actually a convergence happening, which is really sad and scary between uh, post-communist Europe and America as it is now. And I just wanted to bring attention to another dangerous trend that you shared in your book, The Dying Citizen in America, and you called it actually state nullification efforts, yes. in which some states blatantly ignore federal laws and thus deprive Americans of their constitutional rights. And one such example is emergence of sanctuary cities, which have released into the general population over 10,000 known criminal aliens whom ICE agents were attempting to deport. Uh, Dr. Hansen, could you kindly share with our listeners your thoughts about state nullification efforts and what can Americans do to strengthen the rule of law under the U.S. Constitution and actually go against this lawlessness that is happening in America? We all know now that federal immigration law has been nullified by the government, the federal government, out the border. But what's, as you point out, there are 550 jurisdictions, state, local, and counties, in which federal immigration law is not fully enforced. And that means that if a person is drunk driving, he's pulled over, he's found not to be a legal citizen, he's, he's jailed, they will not call the immigration uh, service to pick him up. They will not do that. So they shield a criminal. They won't call them for any, for any whether they're committing a crime or they come through the system and found to have been illegally residing in the United States. They will not call them. And what's funny about it is it's asymmetrical. So if you're a county in Utah or a county in Virginia and you would you were to say, well, if they're going to nullify law in all of these blue states about immigration, why don't we just nullify federal gun registration law? And you can just buy a handgun, go in and buy it. Or maybe if we're building a, uh, a new store and we, we, we run across a three-spotted lizard on the endangered species, we'll just ignore it. So you can see where this goes. The left would be outraged if anybody emulated its own tactics. 
It raises another peculiar issue, and that is uh, it's very similar to what the, the antebellum South did. 1832, South Carolina just said, you know what, we're not going to follow federal law as far as tariffs go. And there was almost an earlier civil war over that. Andrew Jackson called out the army. And then, in eight, of course, we know in 1861, they just said uh, federal property does not belong to the federal government within Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina. And what I'm getting at is that it's very ironic that the left is emulating the neo-Confederate impulse. And by that, I mean they believe they have state strike. I grew up with George Wallace standing, watching him on TV saying, we're not going to let the federal government come into the University of Alabama and integrate this, even though that's the law. And they arrested him. But now the left feels that he, I guess that principle is good, that the states can nullify what the federal government says. Used to be kind of a right-wing nutty thing, but now the the left has embraced it. The left has embraced the neo-Confederate idea of one drop. In fact, Halle Berry said that the famous actress. She said, I'm going to get custody of my child because the one drop rule is still in accordance. And what she meant was that basically blue states have been so fixated on race and they adjudicate people by their superficial appearance, the universities, Hollywood, that they're emulating the Confederate. The only difference that I can see is in, in the antebellum and postbellum South, in this racist paradigm, if you were one sixteenth black, people tried to pass as white, and they did because it, it was insane to have these percentages, and it was almost Hitlerian. But now we have the same percentages, but we have a, a Elizabeth Warren or a Ward Churchill that are doing just the opposite. They're trying to uh, manufacture a trace element that will allow them to be non-white, but the reasoning is the same. They're living in a racially obsessed society where they're actually going back to kind of a DNA microanalysis uh, to get privilege. And it's really scary. And you can even say in California, we were getting on the question of, a, of no middle class. If you look at Illinois or New York, I'm just taking three examples in California. They always talk about the genie, the genie coefficient. It's a, as you know, it's a barometer of inequality the left has, has embraced. According to that, their own calculus, the most unequal societies in the United States are in California, New York, and Illinois. That is, the people who have the greatest uh, concentration of wealth are in blue states. And we know why, because that blue state paradigm of high taxes on income, which hits the middle class, and the wealthy usually evaded by capital gains tax or tax avoidance lawyers, and then massive subsidies for the poor, and then very uh, a high degree of regulation that discourages uh, inexpensive housing or fuels and serves these utopian needs of the wealthy. They're almost neo-Confederate. They remind me so much of what was Mississippi or Georgia or the Carolinas before the Civil War, where you had big cotton and the plantation class, and then you had no middle class at all, and then you had a servile population. And that, uh, I'm not trying to be too exact, but when you look at California and you see big tech in $6 trillion of market capitalization from Stanford to San Francisco, and then you see people sleeping in trailers or on the street uh, in buses who work for Google or Twitter or Facebook, they can't afford even to rent. 
and they, they, they drive in long distances, sleep in their cars. You see there is no middle class. Nobody can buy a home. There's just poor and the plantation class. And it's something the left, I don't think, really has been called to account. They are emulating a lot of the Confederate notions of economic race and uh, nullification. And Professor Hansen, last week we received information from the Border Patrol and in fiscal year 2022, there have been some 50 arrests of illegal migrants on the terrorist screening database at the southern border. And that figure is more than the total number apprehended in the last five years combined. And other relevant data relay that immigration officials encountered more than 1.7 million illegal immigrants along the U.S. border in 2021, three times the number they reported in 2020, and more than 1.2 million migrants along the border in 2022. This combined amount of 2021 and 2022 figures comes to about 3 million illegal immigrants encountered at the border. And so we're facing this national security crisis at our southern border. Professor Hansen, what are we to make of this national security crisis at our southern border? And why is the Biden administration loath to admit it? Well, we know there's three crises without have, that accrue from not having a border, in our case with Mexico. One is, as you said, we have people coming across the border who are known terrorists. Number two, we had 100,000 people die of fentanyl overdosing. It's not even the right word overdosing, just taking it. And that seems to be shipped by China into Mexico and then deliberately sent across the border by cartel. It's a national plague and nobody says a word. And then three, I just returned from Israel with a tour group. They were terrified they would test positive because at that point, 10 days ago, you could not come in the United States. And they were advised that if they had to quarantine five or 10 days in a foreign country, it could cost them 10 or 15,000 for uh, last minute hotel accommodations, living expenses, change tickets with, with no, it was an indeterminate sentence to stay there. And yet at the same time, people during a pandemic are endangering public health by coming across the border without vaccinations or even tests. So these are things that that, as you say, they're inexplicable. No person who's sworn to the office of president to take an oath to enforce the laws would ever do such a thing. So why are they doing it? And there's a lot of theories, but I think the one that remains is that they feel, that remains the most cogent, is they feel they, they don't have an agenda that appeals to American citizens. And they feel that they want to change the system, whether that's getting rid of the filibuster or pack the court or elect the electoral college or admit new states. And then hand in glove, they want to bring in millions of people who have children who will be anchor babies and they can build a new constituency. The problem with all of this is that one of their most reliable constituencies in the collective sense has been Latinos. When they look at the border, they see the same thing that we do. They be in the collective sense. They say, wait a minute, there's drugs coming across. We have to be very careful about Omicron. There are Omicron's coming across. There's terrorists coming across. And 50% of the arrivals are not even from Mexico. They're from all over the world. So they don't have that kinship tie to the same degree they used to. And then fourth, and most importantly, and they're being shipped at night or bus to their communities to impact their federal and local services, to overcrowd their schools. So one of the strange things the left didn't count on is I think this will be the first election this November 
where the so-called Latino vote could be as high as 50% for Republican candidates. If that were to occur, I would imagine that they would close the border very quickly. In your book, The Dying Citizen, you talk about the importance of integration, assimilation, and intermarriage of immigrants. And that's what stands against uh, tribal loyalties, which is happening. So from your book, I quote, what currently threatens to change historic patterns of Mexican and Latin American integration, assimilation, and intermarriage is not sudden white racism. The challenge ahead is simply the huge numbers of impoverished aliens without high school diplomas who have recently crossed the border illegally and upon arrival are encouraged to emphasize their otherness by a mostly white progressive elite. End of quote. Yes. So what you just mentioned is that the left is using these illegal immigrants for a political agenda of identity politics, counting on them as their natural constituents and a powerful voting bloc, while breaking immigration law and diluting the U.S. citizenship. What can a U.S. citizen do to reverse this dangerous trend? Well, they have to return to, we all are big supporters of legal immigration, but legal immigration must be diverse. It must be from all over the world, not one particular area. It has to have a, a degree of meritocracy, not just familial ties. It has to be, as I said, diverse, has to be legal. And we would like the immigrant to come in with some skills, like the English language, or at least some familiarity with our language and custom. But if you do the very opposite, and you do it by a deliberate choice, then you're bringing in people from one area, in mass, illegal, without the skills that will allow them to be competitive and sustainable. And that would mean that you assume that the federal government state governments would have to expand their social welfare agencies and have this huge new constituency. That's exactly what they're doing. But whether this is going to be sustainable, uh, because I, I live in an area that's 90% Mexican-American in Central California, and I can tell you that we are six hours from the border by car. You can already see the difference. Some of that three million are bust everywhere, including Central California, and people who are Mexican-American citizens are not happy about it. They're not happy about it. I'll just finish by saying it. It's, a, it's almost a psychological issue is why do these very, very wealthy bicoastal elites, for the most part white or Asian, but mostly white, very highly accomplished, credentialed, the right stamps from colleges, et cetera, why do they want open borders? Because they show no affinity that they want their children to go to the schools with Mexican-American kids. They don't go to PTA meetings with new immigrants. They don't invite them into their home for dinner, maybe as maids or, or nannies or cooks or landscapers. But they, for some people who are such rabid, uh, chauvinistic supporters of open borders, they show no propensity to want to meet the actual people. And it, to me, it suggests that is some type of psychological effort to square a circle that they feel guilty about their privilege, their segregated lives, but they're not guilty enough to make any material sacrifices to change that. And so in the abstract, they virtue signal how left-wing they are, and then they can continue on with their apartheid existence. And I think that's, that could be applied to a lot of things, whether to the New Green Deal, to race relations, a lot of these pathologies we've been talking about this morning, they originate with a highly globalized bicoastal elite 
who feel that in the abstract, they want all of these diversity, equity, inclusion, nostrums, but with the proviso that none of them will ever apply to themselves or their children and will not interrupt their own blessed lives, but will provide sort of medieval penance for what they think is the sins of indulgence, I guess, or something. But uh, there's no other way to explain their schizophrenia of, of really being rabid about particular policy positions, and yet in their own material lives, they live lives absolutely antithetical. When I saw the Michelle Obama's been lecturing people about uh, fairness and equity, and she's either bouncing between her new mansion in Hawaii or her new mansion at Martha's Vineyard or her new mansion in Coloroma in the Washington, D.C. district, but never, never any confession or that she's aware of this glaring uh, hypocrisy. That's, I think, part of our problem right now. We have a globalized, very wealthy elite that is very, very hard left in theory, and once the middle class has suffered the consequences of its ideology, but it shows no propensity to be around poor people or middle people. It doesn't care. You can really see it with gas prices. Nobody in that administration has ever said, I feel terrible that Juan Lopez in Fresno has to drive 50 miles and pay $7 for his diesel pickup. That's a crime I've done to him. No, they always say something like, well, we're in a period of transition, or get a Tesla. These are rough times that we have to go through, and we can hope that the midterms will be a partial corrective to them. Right, that's like Absolutely. a Mary Antoinette that you reminded us. Eat cake if you don't have bread. Yes. <laughs> drive a Tesla. Eat a Tesla. That's right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Victor Davis Hansen, for joining us on America's Roundtable. He's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His focus is classics and military history. And his most recent book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. We encourage our listeners to certainly get this book and other great books from Professor Hansen. It's great summer reading, folks. Folks. And thank you so much, Professor Hansen, once again, for being with us on America's Roundtable. Thank you so much, Professor Hansen. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladensami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.